This morning we enter the content of our statement of faith at Sovereign Grace Church. Statements of faith can be, tend to be kind of something that we put on our websites. I mean, we put in our articles of incorporation or our bylaws. We have to. We have to say what, what it is we are about, why we believe what we believe, and that kind of thing to, to kind of designate us as a 501c3 nonprofit organization, a church. Um, even even non not even for profits have to put down their purpose statement and how they're going to run business and whatnot. So we put our statement of faith in there, and and uh, you know it makes the makes the website. And if you're looking for a church to attend, you might very well you'd be wise to go to the statement of faith and consider the statement of faith of what they believe. Um, the thing is is that statements of faith are kind of a dime. A dime a dozen. There, there's, there's, you, you've seen one, you've seen many. There's, there's all sorts of similarities. Matter of fact, there's a lot of copy and pasting that goes on in statements of faith. Um, and one thing that Pastor Dan had mentioned last week is that, that we have developed over seven years at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, not this like new uh, progressive do, uh, statement of faith, but we have put our minds together, our, our thoughts together, our, our hearts together. All the elderships in Sovereign Grace over a period of seven years and worked this statement of faith out. That, that has its roots in, in historic orthodoxy. Um, but it is, for a lack of a better term, it is our wording. It is our emphases. It's, it's, uh, it's what we believe at Sovereign Grace Church Staten. And Dan said, uh, said this comment last week. He said, uh, a robust biblical statement of faith is critical to our spiritual nourishment individually and the health of our church corporately. A robust, means like strong, healthy, um, uh, informed statement of faith, not just a simple, you know, we believe in God, we believe in this, we believe in that, but, but forming our thoughts, helping incorporate scripture into our thoughts, why we believe what we do. A robust biblical statement of faith is critical for our spiritual nourishment individually and the health of our church corporately. That we might be unified, not just relationally, but unified doctrinally in our relationships. Not that we're always speaking statement of faith kind of language with each other, but when we believe what we believe, it comes out in the way that we respond to each other, the way that we act, the way that we serve, the way that we worship, the way that we think, the way that we pray, all of that. So this robust biblical statement of faith begins with what we believe about the scriptures. When, if you were to get this or look at our website under the We Believe section, you can look at the, at the doctrine of scripture, the very first one. And this is what we're gonna be talking about this morning. And so I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And we'll just read the first three words of Genesis 1, verse 3. And let's all read it together. Ready? And God said. And God said. Verse 3 of the Bible. These three words are enormous. They're easily read over, assumed, they're overlooked. But these three words in the third verse of the book of books generates such a chain reaction through all of Scripture that it becomes the first and most central of our doctrine of, 
or statement of faith. It's the, it's the first. As a matter of fact, every, every statement of faith, every confession through the years in orthodoxy has had Scripture at the forefront. The very first thing, not just, not just Scripture per se, but the fact that God is a speaking God. And beginning with these first words in the third verse of the first chapter of the Bible, I would love for us to consider three things this morning. It's, it's a wonderful mercy that our God speaks. It's a wonderful gift to have a record of God's word, and it's a wonderful privilege to believe God's word. Those are the three things that I just want to speak about this morning. First, it's a wonderful mercy that our God speaks. Now imagine with me for a moment if God were mute, didn't speak, couldn't speak, never spoke. He never reveals himself. He never lets you know what he's like. He never offers a glimpse into any of his attributes. There's, there's no way in any sense that we would know anything about him whatsoever. He's a silent God. May as well be dead as far as we know. We just don't know him. There, there would only be left, we would only be left with questions and opinions. There would be no sense of any lasting hope. There would be no real sense of purpose outside of just living for ourselves and enjoying whatever makes us feel good, a constantly moving target. Always wanting what someone else has. Ultimately, everyone would do what's right in their own eyes, and that's just scraping the, the top of the ugliness and hopelessness that would be experienced if God were mute. And this, of course, is, is how much of the world exists. And as though God, if there is such a thing, never spoke, never revealed himself, never let us know what he's like, and even if he did, his speech and his revelation of himself, his character and attributes, simply unacceptable and summarily rejected. And, and there goes a society, and there goes a nation, and there goes a generation, and there goes a civilization. Disregarding this reality, this book comes with the guarantee of great peril. You, you strip your life of this book, believing the things that we're going to talk about today, and you do so at great peril. A culture, a society begins to strip away from this book, starting to question. Let's start with the church. A church begins to strip away the authority of God's word and starts to be progressive because certainly Paul didn't know about such and such a thing that we know today, except the fact is, like we just told the kids, Paul didn't primarily write the Bible. Definitely used, utilized fully. But it was the Holy Spirit that spoke. The Holy Spirit that spoke through men. You remove God's word from the family, and the family slides. You remove the word from a church, and the church slides until you can't necessarily have enough people in a building anymore, and someone else has to take the building over because we want to proclaim the word of God in all its glory, all its fullness, in all its straightforwardness, without bowing to cultural pressures. Look, it's what we believe, that we know God exists, that he is a speaking God. We, we know he exists because he speaks, because he said so. He's a God who reveals himself. He's a, a God who reveals his character and his attributes. And we believe straightforwardly 
hands down, everything that we do, everything in this life, everything in the life to come, everything hinges on this. Therefore, it's first in our statement of faith. Without the foundational truth that God is speaking, that he is a speaking God, there is no hope. There's no purpose, no meaning, no direction for an individual life or an entire society. And just as a side note, how can we expect politicians who have put the word of God aside to, to somehow become people who honor Christ in everything that they do? When, when people in the church, frankly, who believe that God is who he says he is through the word, we also keep our Bibles on the shelf most often. Like when we read in the third verse of the Bible, it's God's very first act in creation. And with that first act, God reveals something about himself. And again, we overlook it so quickly, but he reveals that he is a communicative God. He is a speaking God. And God said. And we see that he's the God of unlimited power and truth, that when God speaks, Whatever he says happens. He speaks, worlds are created. The only tool that God uses to create are his words. See verse 3 in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, 24, 26, 28, and 29. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said ten times. And we may get caught up in all sorts of other discussion points in the creation account. But one thing we must make sure to not miss is that this most foundational and wonderful reality that our God is a speaking God. Don't, don't forget it. Don't, don't let it gloss over. Don't let it go one, in one ear and out the other. God, our God, the creator God, is a communicative God. He is a speaking God. Our statement of faith says he both creates and governs through his words. God, God speaks and matter comes into existence out of nothing. And what he creates is continually sustained by his word. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 3 says that the universe is upheld by the what? The word of his power. The book of Genesis itself is written to demonstrate God's absolute um, power and truth in a specific way to original readers who had just been delivered out of Egypt and were, were overcome by the, 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 the nation's godlessness and, and, and worship of the creature rather than the creator. So starting in the very first chapter of the Bible, God speaks and he communicates to the Israelites who had lost their way communicating with them mercifully that the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals that they so badly want to make into some sort of golden creature to bow down and worship, none of them are God. But he says, I am. Not God. The creature is not God. I am the creator. I am God. I spoke the animals into existence, so don't worship rocks. I spoke, I spoke trees into existence, so don't worship the tree. Don't worship that which was created. Worship me, the one who created the heavens and the earth, all that's seen, all that's not seen. In this uh, very first act of speaking, we become aware that God is a God of mercy. In verse 3 of the Bible, that in his speech in his 
attribute of communication, that he doesn't keep to himself, but that he is revealing himself. It is just mercy. He doesn't have to do that, but he does so that we know him and so that we'd love him and so that we choose to follow him all the days of our life. And in this first act of speaking, as he creates with the word of his power, God makes himself known as, you know, generally creation speaks about him and reflects his glory. And, and it's called the general revelation of God. I know many of you already are familiar with this, the general revelation of God. The psalmist sings out, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. There's a general revelation that God is the creator, that God exists, that God has done this. The heavens declare the glory of God, the, the actions of God, the majesty of God, and it reflects that glory. Paul tells us in Romans 1, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to mankind because God has shown it to them. How? Well, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So true is this that the next line says, so men and women, boys and girls are without excuse. There is a general revelation in the sky. There's a general revelation as I look out at you and consider Evie, the smile on her face up there. Can't help but smile at watching her and seeing things work. We can't help but see God's glory, even in those people who are not well, who are sick, and we recognize that, man, something starts going wrong in our bodies and we start to fall apart. We know that when we're just sick, you know, we wonder if we're going to make it, especially guys when they have a cold. It's just like it's hard, you know. Um, it's, but it's like we, we think we're going to die. And the reality is there's just a couple of things wrong with us. We're made remarkably well, wonderful. The foundational truth that mankind has so often suppressed in our desire to be the God of our own kingdom is this reality of general revelation. Not simply people overlooking God, but rejecting him wholesale. Now, just yesterday I was watching a little bit of TV and there's a new, a new picture of, of you know, how, how the universe began and whatnot uh, from this new t telescope. And it's I mean, I look at it and I'm just like, God, you are just outrageous. But was God mentioned at all on this newscast? It was just godless. There was no sense of his invisible attributes, no sense of his eternal power, no sense of his divine nature, only the fact that we got this telescope up there that's looking out and seeing our history we are this, we're that, and that's amazing. We don't understand it, even though God's word, God said, God communicated. In addition to generally revealing himself to all mankind through the means of creation, God reveals himself to specific people at different times and places through special means for the purpose of restored fellowship with himself. And that's not called general revelation. That's called very specific revelation. 
He reveals himself specifically through history, through the actions, his actions, through his word. He speaks to people. People write those things down and communicate his word and his way. Not only is it historical, it's redemptive. His revelation of himself is that we would know him. Not just, not just that we would know some information, but that we would know him intimately, have fellowship with him. Jeremiah 31 says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. They will know me. This, this intimate relationship, communion with God, fellowship with him, and that's God's merciful desire is relationship with his creation. Merciful intention and special revelation. It's about people having a relationship with him, fellowship with him, communion with him, restoring what was lost on that, from that day that when we cast him aside and didn't believe his word. Did God really say was the temptation? And that temptation is alive and well this morning as well. Did God, did God really say that? It's historical, the special revelation, it's redemptive, and it's unfolding. Not progressive in the way that our culture views progressive Christianity or progressive religion where like new things are being made up, but a revelation that continually builds on itself, not replacing or creating new truth, but a revelation that continues to reveal more and more and more of God and who he, who he is and how he has made a way for us to be in relationship with him. So throughout God's word, we see this, this unfolding revelation from the beginning all the way to the very end, especially culminating with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Hear, hear that. He spoke to the prophets. He's a communicative God. He spoke to the prophets. We read the prophets, and it's as though God is speaking to us through the prophets. Nevertheless, in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? The Son. By, by Jesus, his Son. His, in creation, he spoke his character, he spoke his ways, and his plan of salvation for his people, but we turned aside we sinned, we rejected him, and so God sends prophets to, to correct their way, to challenge them, to, to cause them to, to turn from their ways, to repent and believe on God, to place their faith in him, to trust his character, to trust his ways, to trust his plan of salvation for his people. But our hearts were hard, right? And we must identify with the people of Israel. We must identify with the people in the Old Testament. We're just like them. People in our culture just like them, and we stray. But this God of mercy continued to provide a way to know him. And he spoke specifically, not through prophets anymore, not even through the greatest prophet, but through the Son, Jesus. Other religions might call Jesus a great prophet, a good man, a good teacher, a great teacher, maybe one of the best. God's word says, the Son, God, I am. God himself, the word, the speaking God, taking on flesh. And unlike the prophets of old, Jesus didn't only come with uh, God's message, he came as God's message. He was the word. He himself is the revelation of God's character and his ways and his plan of salvation for his people. Jesus himself is God's message to humanity. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he's the center of what God wants to communicate to us. So this gospel of Jesus Christ is enormously important, absolutely central. 
It's, it's, it's the, not only the most important message you'll ever hear, but it's the only essential message you'll ever hear. Out of all the things in this world that are, are vying for our attention, all the non-essential noises that are coming at us, very something's very important. Nothing compares to God's Word. His revelation in the Bible cries out the only essential message we must hear and take heed of, a merciful message from our speaking God to save us from the just penalty of our sins before our Creator, that we'd be freed and that we'd be delivered and we'd be given eternal life. Let's so just ask a question. With all the voices that we have speaking to us all around us, whether from inside or from without, whose voice, whose voice do you listen to primarily? It's a wonderful mercy that our God is a speaking God. And he speaks generally in creation and specifically in God's word, in the Bible. Which leads us to our second consideration, that it's a wonderful gift to have a record of God's word. Could be that I mean, God spoke more than was just here. Could be that all of his words just kind of went into history. Just in moments of history, never recorded, just always experienced. But men, as they were brought along by the Holy Spirit, recorded some of what God said. They are the mercy-filled words of God to you and to me. What a wonderful gift to have the record of God's word in our hand and in our language. We don't have to try to learn Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. We can, we can trust the English translations of the Bible. We can read and learn, understand. Our statement of faith says this. All the scripture is breathed out by God, being accurately delivered through various human authors by the inspiration and sovereign agency of the Holy Spirit. We therefore receive the 66 books of the Old and New Testament as the perfect, infallible, and authoritative word of God. Perfect, infallible, and authoritative word of God. It's a rich gift to us that we have a record of God's word. Let me tell you why it's a rich gift. There's four attributes that we historically think of, the church has historically thought of when it comes to God's Word. And they're all gifts. The first one is the fact that it's authoritative as the Word of God. It, when it speaks, it speaks with authority, not just a nice little thing to think about, a nice little sweet book that you may or may not pick up or have little cute plaques on your wall. This is the Word of God, authoritative Word of God. As we've considered afresh this morning, Scripture is the very words of God to mankind that we call the Bible, the book. Uh, the belief comes from a clear teaching through Scriptures. From the first book to the last book, Scripture describes itself as God's Word. We, we believe that being God's Word, Scripture must be authoritative. If God says it's His Word, it's His Word. And if God says it's His Word and it's His Word, then that Word surely is authoritative. The ultimate basis for believing that Scripture is authoritative is, is found in Scripture itself. 
The scripture describes itself as the word of God throughout, again, throughout the whole book. And simply put, if God's word is just that, then there is no higher authority to be had. Because if there were a higher authority, well, that higher authority to prove that the Bible is God's word would be actually the thing that we would need to worship. And of course, for any of you who understand these things, you know, this is just circular reasoning. God's word because God says it's his word. God's word because he says it's his word. It doesn't really hold weight in most things. It's not a logical argument in many situations, but it's the only logical argument that can ultimately prove the authority of Scripture. Looking to the highest authority in the universe for the testifying of Scripture's authority is the only objective thing to do. Any, any other way would be looking experientially for proof, trusting in subjective feelings for evidence, I mean, highlighting the authority of our opinions over the self-attestation of God, of God saying, this is my word, I don't think so. You see the authority problem here. Now, there's certainly the inner work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to trust in and believe God's word to be authoritative and worthy of our lives. There's the objective truth that if God, the highest authority, testifies that they are his words, then that is the best and clearest proof that they are just that. And so ultimately, to say, I don't believe that, is to say, I don't believe God. Scripture testifies to its own authority. From the Old Testament through the New Testament, we read the authors communicating the very words of God. We, we read it from time to time when it actually says, thus says the Lord, and then we see a statement or a phrase or a chapter of something specifically that God said, and they wrote it down specifically. It wasn't their gleanings about what God said. It was exactly what he said to them. So these words that they spoke and wrote down were exact representations of the words that God spoke to them on the, in the desert, in their homes, in the sanctuary, wherever. They were given words to speak, words to record. No one less than almighty, sovereign God speaking words and doing actions to, with, and for his people. And in the New Testament, uh, of course, we're in, immediately introduced to Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the, the Word made flesh. And he believed and taught that the Old Testament scriptures, all of them, would be trusted, were to be trusted as authoritative. There's also Paul's teaching in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, like I've mentioned a couple times. Peter taught in 2 Peter 1, uh, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture came from the will of man, but, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the teaching of Scripture. Then, then Paul or Peter brings more clarity in 2 Peter 3, 16, when he refers to Paul's letters specifically uh, as Scripture, equating them with the thus says the Lord portions of the Old Testament. And Paul quotes from both what we know to be the Old Testament and New Testament and calls them both Scripture in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, the very words of God. So what we have here from front to back are the very words of God to you and to me. Scripture declares that it's the word of God. The Jews knew it to be true via the prophets, spoken word and writing, along with the power that came with it. And Jesus himself, who was testified of by the Father in John 10, taught that the scriptures were the authoritative words of God, and the apostles wrote the same. 
And as the word of God is the word of God, they are, there are simply no errors. There's no higher authority. There are no errors because our God is perfect. His word is truth itself, John 17, 17. The reality is, is that, I mean, what a, what a gift we have in this book. What a precious reality we have in this book that each of us have on our phones or in our hands right now. We have such availability of God's word. When we open this book, we read the very words of God. And as such, we agree with Moses when he says in Deuteronomy 32, it's no empty word for you. This book, no empty word for you, but it's your very life. Well, God's word is a gift also because it's necessary to know God personally. It's authoritative, but it's also just, it's just necessary to know God personally. We have general revelation that reveals the glory of God. Yeah, thankful for that and makes men accountable to what they know in their hearts. But we need the Bible, God's word either read by us or spoken to us. If we're going to know the God whose glory we see in the heavens, that the word of God is necessary to know God personally and how we can have our sins forgiven and how we can be made right with the Father. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15 that the words of God are able to make them wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is what God's word does. There is purpose in this. The Bible is also necessary for growth in our life as a child of God. You think about the things that, that Dan said last week, a robust biblical statement of faith is critical to our spiritual nourishment individually and the health of our church corporately, starting with Scripture. If we're not a scriptural church, if we're not a biblical church, not just, not just from this platform down, but just in our lives as a church family, it's, it's going to be impossible to grow. And nourished. We must, as Christians, be intaking a steady and full diet of the Word of God, much like the nourishment of food and water for our bodies. Um, so this is why this is why we are so in favor of of Bible translation work around the world to get the Bible into people's languages. This is why we're so in favor of sending dear ones, to a foreign land to speak gospel truth in a culture that has 0.003% people who are believers. There's just, there's just much more Quran, vastly more Quran than there is God's word. Not to impart Western ideology, but to proclaim the necessary word of God in lands where it's uncommon or unavailable, misunderstood, so that men and women of all tribes and nations can hear the words of life that make them wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's why we send people. That's why we would want to send you, if you want to go overseas sometimes, to, to, to preach the gospel, to, to be part of that. We would want to talk with you and encourage you in that way. Well, God's word is a gift also because it's clear and understandable. Our statement of faith goes on to say, the word of God is clear. Everything we need in order to know, love, and fellowship with God can be plainly understood through ordinary means without appeal to any human authority. Although not all scripture is equally plain, when its intended meaning is misunderstood, the fault lies not in the clarity of God's communication, but in the recipient. Now, certainly there are some who have a better understanding of the scriptures than others, but still the Bible is written in such a way as to make it clear to any that God has a plan to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. It's 
simple, gloriously simple to read this passage. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not complicated. It's crazy, but it's not complicated. That God would die for me, would love me as a sinner, still in my sin, and yet he showed his love for me in that he sent Jesus to die for me. That's why we're told to teach these words diligently to our children, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Clearly it's expected that parents teach their young children what God reveals about himself in the scriptures, and with the expectation that children are going to understand. They're going to they're get it, understand as they're taught. Psalm 119 and 19, respectively, the psalmist says that God's word imparts understanding to the simple, and it makes the simple wise. And God's word is also a gift because it's sufficient to know him. It's necessary to know him. Uh, it's sufficient to know him. The Bible is the word of God, has all the information we need to know God and know his plan, know how to become his child, know how to live life as a child of God. God's God's words, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, again, are profitable, sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God or woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Absolutely sufficient, God's word. It's amply sufficient. And as such, it should give us much encouragement to study his word, to know his word more, to know his will. And in God's word, the spirit himself, we have every, as the spirit teaches us and, and causes us to understand God's word clearer, we have everything we need to love God and to worship him and to enjoy him forever. It's a wonderful gift this record of God's words that we have in our hands. And finally, it's a wonderful privilege to believe in God's word. The psalmist sings out, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Listen, this, this, is, this is poetry, but it's not just poetry. More to be desired are they than gold. More to be desired is God's word. If it's just, if it's just writing, if it's not God's word, then, then, then who cares, ultimately? If it's God's word, more to be desired are they than gold. That, makes, that, that would make sense if it really is God's word. More to be desired, sweeter than honey. We're mercifully warned. We know God by them. We know his warnings. We know his promises. By, the, by, by them we know his will and his ways. By them we know Jesus through whom we're saved. By them we know how to walk. By them we know how to truly hope. By them we know how to fix our eyes, what to fix our eyes on. And we know that there is a day coming that we eagerly await for the redemption of our bodies and eternity in heaven. Friends, how can we grow in this wonderful privilege to listen to and follow God's word? Well, we can faithfully participate. We faithfully participate by 
doing what you're doing here, coming to the Sunday morning gathering where we celebrate the good news of Christ and we, we speak God's word through song and prayer, fellowship, sacrament, and teaching, all by the power of the Spirit and the central nature of growing and understanding and applying God's words individually and corporately. So, so, so make, make this time, as you have done this morning, make this time a priority to learn together, to grow together, no matter how you feel. I mean, we know Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings, there's, there are unique temptations in families on Sunday mornings. There are unique temptations in marriages. There's unique temptations for college students. There's unique temptations for all of us on Sunday mornings. If we don't sit under the Word of God regularly, routinely, over and over again, and do that together, man, there's just a, there's just a, so easy to isolate ourselves and to fall away and to start listening to other voices. So come celebrate with us on Sunday mornings. Plan on coming to the Wednesday night meetings in October as they start to grow in your understanding of God's word, whether through teaching little ones or, or sitting and learning together in a in youth group setting or an adult growth meeting. Let's, let's learn together. And it's not that learning in your, in your home in, a, in an armchair with headphones on, listening to a podcast or listening to your favorite preacher online is, is unhealthy. But learning and growing together with real people that you're covenanting with in this church family and hearing from pastors who really do love you imperfectly, but wanting to love you and wanting to lead you. I mean, having you in mind when we're studying to uh, teach or to preach, it's just simply invaluable. When I hear a message from Kale or a message from Dan, I feel specifically thought of and cared for by God. I love hearing other guys other people preaching, but they're not my pastors. Cale and Dan are my pastors. So hearing them, knowing that as they're typing stuff out, I'm on, the Lord brought me to their minds. Just like this morning, so many of you have come to my mind this week as I've been preparing this message. It's just a personal reality that's there. Why not join a Bible study? Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, other, other opportunities that are out there. Perhaps you can just grab your Bible, grab a friend, grab your spouse, and commit yourself to studying God's Word together. Make sure you're sitting down in a planned place every morning or every evening or sometime during the day to spend time in God's Word as you can in some way. Maybe it's a drive into work and listening to God's Word, letting it soak in you and interacting with the Word of God. It'll strengthen you and grow you in the knowledge of God and in godliness. R.C. Sproul once said that we often fail in our duty to study scriptures, not so much because it's difficult to understand, not so much because it's dull and boring, but because it's work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we're lazy. And Paul tells young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There's all sorts of distractions. Um, and for young families, there are all sorts of distractions. Um, but, there's, but there's a way, there's a way to spend moments in God's word. There's a way to put scripture up on your fridge to have it come to your mind. There's a way to be communicating scripture to your child even in the moment of difficulty. 
to allow God's word to be brought to bear. It's not as though the only way that you can study God's word or think about God's word is to have a, to, to have a totally quiet time where nothing is going on. I mean, wait till, wait till you're empty nesters and you'll have lots of time and you realize, wow, the struggle continues. Differently. But the struggle to hard work and sitting and wrestling and working against weary eyes and procrastination um, continues. Open our Bibles eagerly, knowing that God is going to meet with us as, he, as we open his word, and we pray, pray for the Spirit to come, which is the second thing to do. So first, faithfully participate. Secondly, faithfully pray. Recognize that the Holy Spirit is the one who must be present for us to understand God's word, must, must give us longing in our heart and understanding as we, as we read God's word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly to him. Not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So, so friends, it is vital for us to seek the help of the Holy Spirit. We, we pursue, I've said this for years, we pursue the spirit in a number of ways, one of the primary ways we pursue the Spirit by opening the Word of God and saying, Spirit, come and open my eyes. It's not somehow two different things. It is one in the same. It's a wonderful privilege to listen to and follow God's Word. And in fact, we also believe, it's just, just a side note, that the Spirit still gives gifts of ongoing revelation. And I, I have to say that because we believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, that when we gather together, there's, there's teachings and there's, there's prophecies and there's tongues and there's revelations. There's just different, different ways that the Lord speaks. But all of those ways that God speaks still today, because God did not stop being a speaking God, God still speaks today, but, he, but everything has to be tested against this. This is the authoritative written record of what God wants us to know. So when we have a dream, and we're wondering if this dream has anything to do, we evaluate it with others' help. We evaluate it and hold it, hold it underneath God's word. We would never say that the Lord is writing new scripture today, as some might think that we are saying. We're just saying there's different categories of revelation there's nothing higher than the doctrine, the, the, this doctrine of Scripture. This is what we run our lives on. But we should expect the Spirit to continue to speak, continue to direct us, continue to mold us, continue to give us words to encourage one another. And that's as much the work of our speaking God as anything. So let's pray for that. But just as we conclude, maybe... You're listening today and you're aware you've not submitted yourself to God's word and his authority in his word. You can't just bring yourself to give up the freedom of your self-determination. And you may think you're living under your own authority and you're doing what you're going to do and nobody's going to tell me what to do with my body. No one's going to tell me what to do with this. But, but really what you're doing is you're resisting the only true authority. You're, you're preparing yourself to face God's judgment. But you don't need to face his judgment 
God's authoritative, merciful word tells us that Jesus died. He shed his blood to forgive your sins. So that if you just humble yourself and ask him to forgive you of your sins, he will do so. And truth and life will be found in him. Your role is to repent, believe the gospel, turn to him, and trust him. There are others here who are Christians, but areas of your life that you've been unwilling to submit to God's authority. So you've read things in here, but you're really not obeying them. You're not following them. And really, you kind of seem to always resist the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's the way you treat your spouse. Maybe it's the way you treat your children. Maybe it's the way you treat your coworkers. Maybe it's about your participation or fellowship in the church or, or about your unwholesome speech. Or maybe it's about your plans for the future, or your use of social media, or your actions online and your entertainment and, and your finances. Maybe it's the way you arrogantly interact with others regarding the Word of God and inadvertently steer people away from the mercy that's found in there to only have them end up feeling the harshness of your angry theology. Where is it that you need to repent and bring those areas under God's authority? So starting now, open your Bible and prayerfully study. You need, need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to conform you to God's word. Confess to someone in your community group or Bible study or even just the person next to you. Get some accountability and benefit from their perspective and their prayer on your behalf. Our statement of faith ends by saying this, we'll end here. As we devote ourselves to God's word, we commune with God himself and are fortified in faith, sanctified from sin, strengthened in weakness, sustained in suffering by his unchanging revelation in scripture. The word of God is living, active, at work in our lives. It's where God makes himself known. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, it's a long way from Genesis 1-3, but, but the apostle Paul says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Main point, God has mercifully spoken through the scriptures to clearly give you everything needful to know him truly, to love him dearly, and follow him completely. And may we devote ourselves to this word. May we come expectant to hear from God's word each week. And every morning when we wake, we open God's word to see and to feel and to hear his word, that we would be people who also then in turn, because God's a speaking God, he's creating a people who also proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ where we go, caring for one another through the teaching of God's word. May it be so.